0: Hello and welcome to Minter Dialogue, episode number 387. Today is Sunday, the 6th of September, 2020. My name is Minter Dial and I'm your host for this podcast. This week's interview is with Bindi Korea. is an innovation expert advising companies, startups, investors, and governmental bodies on how to push the innovation agenda. In this conversation with Bindi, we discuss the state of innovation, some of the important tech trends, including deep tech, as well as how companies can ramp up their innovation efforts and monetize intellectual property. You'll find all the show notes on minterdial.com. Please do consider to drop in your rating and review, and don't forget to subscribe to catch all the future episodes. Now for the show. Bindi Korea, Listen. Great to have you on the show. You and I have crossed wires many times digitally and in real life. We have a lot of people in common. We Yet do. You, do, you do a part of business that I, I certainly don't know much about. So I'm really intrigued to find out. You also are very multicultural. I like to consider myself somewhat multicultural, but not in your league with so many distant things. I looked at your Instagram account with your your Canadian side you've got your Indian, Kenyan background, and uh, so you're a very intriguing person. In your own words, how would you like to describe yourself?
1: Oh gosh, that, that's, a, that's a big question. <laughs> I, think, um, I think I'd just like to say maybe, and this isn't really politically correct these days, but I guess I'm a child of the Commonwealth, the British Commonwealth, so my parents and grandparents are from Kenya. My great-grandfather's immigrated across to Kenya on the British boats, um, you know, in the same time that Gandhi did in, you know, uh, early 1900s. So we've actually, our family's been in Kenya for a long time. And then my dad actually came to university from Kenya to the UK. So he was in Manchester and went to med school, Um, went back, married my mother, and then they came back here. And that's where I was born and um, when I was about a little bit over five my father fell in love with the Rockies because his best friend from childhood in Kenya was working in the oil patch in Alberta so off we went to a very small farm town in between Edmonton and Calgary in Alberta so that was Red Deer uh, it was by Red Deer so it's a small town near Red Deer it's about a 40 minute drive uh, east of Red Deer that's all I
0: know that exists between Edmonton and yeah. Calgary.
1: Red Deer would be the nearest sort of big city uh, to us. And Red Deer is a small town compared to Edmonton and Calgary. It's called Stettler, actually. So I actually went to school there, but I did hop to Kenya a couple of times in that period uh, and ended up going to school there as well. So I kind of did my early schooling in sort of Kenya and Canada. And then I was at university in Canada, but I always had the British passport and, and the love of, All things Great Britain just because a lot of my family was still here London is halfway dad is one of eight people so Hmm. one of eight siblings and a lot of them are in the US we're the only ones in Canada we had a bunch in the UK a bunch in Kenya so London to me always represented halfway the halfway place to meet all my family because everybody comes through London Uh, and that also I didn't get my Canadian passport till I was over 14 so um, I was always British first, mm. there was a point in life traveling where my father and mother had to give up their British overseas passports, so they chose Canadian, they had to choose Kenyan or the country they were living, so they both chose Canadian, my brother chose, well my brother was born there, so I was the only one on a British passport and the three of them were on a Canadian passport, so it was kind of wild in that time frame, you know, traveling around. But yeah, UK was always in my heart. And so I came back home. I finished university literally the last day of class, I came back. So everything I've ever done career-wise has always been in London, actually. Mm. I just sort of felt like I was coming back home. So I feel yeah. the same. Isn't that funny? Yeah. Excellent. Tell me mm. more about where you were born.
0: Well, I, I was born yeah. in Belgium. I've changed countries 15 times and um and certainly if I've, I've roamed around but i've come back to roost if you will in london
1: yeah something it, about that city that gets under your skin isn't it it is yeah it's so
0: one of the things <laughs> that intrigued me or intrigues me about you bendy is you are so involved in innovation you're on gazillions i want to say of advisory boards it's an amazing set of of, of companies with which you're working i was wondering in Bendy's mind what excites you these days what 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 are the what are the activities in specific i suppose within innovation that excites bendy
1: i mean that's that's a big question so i think a lot of people don't know how to put me in a box and i don't like to put myself in a box so i think that that question is putting me in a tiny box but what i'd love to say is um, there's something i'm learning a lot more about is being a talented generalist which means you're you kind of tried and worked in so many different things over your life that you, you really, you don't necessarily become deep, deep, deep insightful and stuff, but you really are able to pick up something in a category and learn it very, very quickly. And for me, I I would say, um, a, a generalist in innovation is what I love. And I, I segmented my world. Um, I'm saying the word box, but into sort of four pillars or four boxes. And I would say, innovation from the point of view of corporates from startups startup founders venture capitalists as they invest and then actually government policy and government government innovation and how they're really trying to impact it and i think the interaction between the four of them and for me because i speak all four languages very well and i can go in and i can speak the language of the corporate innovation or corporate venture executive and I can tell them well this is actually how the startup CEO or the venture uh, venture capital partner is thinking or the government policy makers thinking because I've spent so much time sitting on advisory boards or working with my sleeves rolled up and actually in the last couple of years I've also extended that to universities because I'm also a governor which is basically a board member at the University of East London so now it's looking at how students and universities fit into that innovation ecosystem as well. So I think for me, it's about ecosystems. It's about corporate startup investor government, and now a little bit more about university, um, and connecting any one of those four, cause I speak those languages. And then actually realizing that there's going to be a commercial success, you know, so venture capital, it's about the deal and bringing in the right company and, you know, the right company that matches the investment hypothesis of the venture capital fund. The startup CEO understanding when they're fundraising, for example, well, who are the VCs should they approach? Or maybe they should strike a strategic partnership with the corporate, or maybe they go for a government grant because it's too soon to be giving up their equity and their products not quite yet ready for, you know, a venture or a corporate partnership or a venture investment. So it's actually really diving into, what I I guess what they're thinking and then being able to translate that across you know different borders and I think that fits in well with just me being very global and international and growing up multicultural even though I'm 100% Indian I am British I am Canadian Um, the only time I freak out is when Great Britain and Canada would play against each other in the Olympics I, I just can't choose I tend to get very paralyzed with oh my gosh I don't know who to choose well, I, the way
0: I, I roll on that is I, I go for the underdog. Yeah. If you're playing hockey, ice hockey, for example,
1: we have to choose Great Britain, right? Right, because I mean,
0: you know, if they score a goal, that would be brilliant.
1: Yeah, but I, I don't think so. Hockey is Canada's national sport, so I don't think I could ever not support Canada. But that, that's let's think of other sports like volleyball in tw- London, 2012. Uh, UK and Canada did play each other, and I was like oh God, I don't know who to support. (laughs) And I think they both were equally as bad as each other. So that was quite fun. But yeah, but also the other thing is culturally, I'm Indian. So there's the hardworking nature. You know, there's always been a uh, focus from all of our families on academic and science and, and all of that. So I think there's always been that sort of and that drive to be successful. And you know, that just that drive to be an entrepreneur, because my grandfathers and great grandfathers were entrepreneurs, and dad was a doctor, but even he had to be entrepreneurial to make it work from Kenya to UK to Canada, Mm -hmm. you know, and just set up in each country. So I I think, you know, the whole thread underlining all of this is innovation, but it's also entrepreneurship, you kind of have to be an entrepreneur and a hustler to make things work. So...
0: When you look at what I meant by with all these advisory board positions you have, it gives you a certain regard and an insight into what's happening in the world of innovation. And and what I was wanting to find out was what excites you in the world of innovation.
1: Right now, um, I, I can go quite deep quite quickly. And what I would say is, I think the more deeper complicated technology uh, side of things. So when I see a deep tech um, deal come through the, the door, you know, in my venture partner role, or when I'm talking to a deep tech founder, or when a corporate is looking at, you know, um, innovating in that space, or trying to partner with someone in that space, um, or governments looking to fund it, I just love that I really, really geek out because it's solving a super complex problem. Um, I've just picked up a client in the last couple of days. So I have a, a really hefty summer project, which is trying to commercialize a piece of IP from a consulting firm. And the, the IP is like four years in the making. So they've created it for many of their clients. And now they're like, there's something super commercial in this. And we're, we need to spin it out. We need to create a business. We need to create an investment case. We need to set up a whole new company. And that is just super exciting for me. So projects like that where you just roll your sleeves up and you set something up. And, you know, in the same like what I did at Silicon Valley Bank or at Microsoft, I was building new businesses for um, both of them when I was working there. So I think I'm excited about the concept of new business, deep technology and seeing how that, you know, changes the world. And I love that. I just geek out and get excited by it every single time. So what
0: is deep technology? Explain to us the, the interest within deep technology. I,
1: I think it's just a really, um, and, and this is me just saying it very simply, it's just a very complex um, combination of, of tech in general. So it is, um, if you look at artificial intelligence and how it applies to chatbots and how it applies to voice, Well, actually, how do humans and machines interact with each other? And that's actually very complex. So, for example, uh, you can ask the machine, I I need coffee, and the coffee machine produces the coffee. But there might be 10,000 ways, or 10,000 is too much, but there might be 500 ways to ask for coffee. And the machine has to be smart enough to know that you're, as a human, asking these 500 different ways and be smart enough to understand that you want coffee. And actually, it's a very complicated problem for that coffee machine and the software underlining it to, you know, create that. And so it, it, it is sort of the, the integration of all of that. So that, that's one good example. So chatbots and conversational UI and voice technology, um, you know, is a scenario.
0: And, and it's a fascinating thing to follow, for sure. I was talking to the folks at Descript who helped to transcribe audio into text and one of the difficulties they had was identifying the word the filler words you know.
1: Yeah, exactly
0: and, and you would have thought that you know comma as in well you know what and then phrase that continues as opposed to well you know a lot about a certain topic yeah. which is a perfectly useful use of you know. And yet that is very difficult for them yeah, to well, 100% uh,
1: identify. Exactly. And I think that it's sort of that human machine interaction. So the zeros and the ones to not just um, language. So saying it in uh, in French or English or Spanish or Gujarati, which is my, my parents' mother tongue, um, it, it's actually in the dialect as well. So will they mm-hmm. understand my dad, for example, who has a crazy Canadian, Kenyan, Indian, British accent combined. And he has a Google home and it just doesn't understand him. It's hilarious. You know, just, we, we occasionally record our father talking to the Google device and it's so funny what the device thinks it's asked, it's asked for. So it's, it's just, it's so such a complicated problem. And, you know, I think the way that we're trying to get machines to help us with, so much more i mean most of my home nowadays is controlled by i'll say this quietly alexa because it's just (laughs) by my my laptop up here
0: (laughs) yes bindi what can i do for you
1: (laughs) and and so you know i can you know turn on my lights or turn on my heating or, or whatever um and uh i think that's really interesting so when
0: when you so looking at innovation in this space, I was much more just vertical in one small little industry. Yeah. I have that experience. But you you have a very broad array that you've been following. Yeah. I was wondering how innovation has changed, if at all, over the last let's say five to ten years.
1: I think innovation is about identifying what the wave of change is and what the wave of um Uh, how do I describe it? There's a problem that needs to be fixed and the innovators go, we're going to fix it. So 10 years ago, you know, the iPhone, iPhone came out in what, 2007. And so by about 2009, 2010, we're really starting to get into the app world and app ecosystem and mobile, uh, you know, and, and all of that. And now you fast forward to today and you have artificial intelligence and chatbots and voice enabled technologies. So I think innovation to me is around what is shifting us forward at that period in time. So, you know, 10 years ago, if you look at how investors work, investors invest in the waves. So right now, let's think about us in COVID, actually zoom look at, you know, we're talking right now over zoom, And um, who would have thought, like, they would have had the share price they've had, who would have thought they would have come to the level of, um, I guess, you know, market penetration they've had, but needs must. So, I think the future of work is going to call for a lot of innovations. And I feel that the times we're in right now, some of the most innovative companies have come out of recessions and downturns. Google was in the noughties, and Microsoft was in the 70s, and you know, out of every downturn, there is some form of innovation and technology to propel us to the next. And I think industry four is another good example of that. So sort of smart manufacturing processes. And, um, and again, this is a year old now. But when I was at Mobile World Congress in 2019, because obviously, 2020 was canceled due to the pandemic. For me, the most interesting thing was to observe that even in 2018, we weren't there yet, but by 2019, it was full-on 5G demos everywhere, smart cars absolutely everywhere, and so many automotive um, uh, manufacturers, way more than there were there in 2017, but also industry force. So just seeing Nokia, who used to be a phone provider, but here's Nokia uh, in the same traditional spot they have in Hall, I think they're usually in Hall 3. And, and actually, it was all industry four and the future of manufacturing facilities and how the, the Nokia technologies are kitting out these uh, facilities. So actually, I find that going to a lot of these large-scale um, people-heavy technology uh, events, you really learn a lot about innovation. So for me, I'm always geeking out. And I remember, again, in 2019, Hall 7, I was geeking out about graphene which was invented in Manchester and and actually what is the use case for graphene and we're still trying to figure that out and I think that's the thing for example with deep tech investors are like we're going to invest in it but when is it actually going to come to market when is it actually going to be commercializable and is that a word I don't even know but yeah it sounds good I I understand it. it but when can we commercialize it and it takes a long time before they get revenue and um so to me that's very very interesting Mm. is, is geeking out on all of those type of things
0: well in in what i was thinking about was to what extent for example valuations or concepts of ethics and purpose might have come into the way innovation is being orchestrated evaluated either from a government even a small company startup or a corporate company, are those elements starting to play into the way people are innovating as well?
1: Well, it it's quite interesting, because if you look at the kind of trouble that um, Twitter and Facebook have been getting into recently, and if you look at the role companies like that allegedly played in the 2016 Trump elections or in our Brexit uh, election, uh, Brexit referendum in 2016, what role did that have? And if you look at the role of players like that now with the spread of fake news and, you know, finally Twitter is starting to say things like this might be fake news. Right. And, and how it's showing bias. I think it's really created, um, uh, for lack of a better word, it's just created a divide, you know, the, the liberal left and the, uh, you know, the polarized right. So it's really interesting. I think technology and more and more is coming in that space. So I think actually, yes, we need to start thinking about an ethical executive. I actually wrote an article for City AM Minter that I'll send to you and feel free to post in, in, in this. Sure. Is, is, is the ethical executive the next big thing? And if you think about it, artificial intelligence is a great example of that. So I can't remember who it was. So you, uh, please don't quote me on this. Was it Google, was it Microsoft? And they ran a, a face recognition uh, software And it was very interesting because the darker the skin color was, the worse it became of mistaking, Mm. you know, faces for each other. And if you think about how that crosses into ethics and racism and now the Black Lives Matter movement and, you know, I'm a minority female. So I've always encountered this kind of racism, especially in the part of Canada I was in. But how does technology play into that? So absolutely there's room for that. I think we have to become more ethical and I'm very much a strong proponent of a role in the enterprise called the chief ethics officer. And I'm not talking compliance and all of that boring stuff. I'm talking about someone saying, is this the right thing to do? Are we building our AI in a way that only suits the needs of middle-aged white men because that's who's building the product? Or are we building an AI that suits the needs of humanity? and actually think about the pandemic right now and you know, getting access to the vaccines, who's gonna get access to that immediately. And, and so I do think there is a strong need for that. I think some of the more woke corporates are waking up to it. So Salesforce, for example, I forget the role title, but it's sort of a chief ethics something or another. Um, and again, we'll have to look that up but she reports directly into Benioff and she's focused on how products are developed from an ethical perspective but also how are they sold, how are they deployed, you know, to the market and you know she's providing that kind of sort of nudge in the ear of the chief executive. So I don't think we're there yet but I do think it's a role of the future and I do think we need to be much more self-aware as executives in this space, and as innovators in this space, because we are becoming quite dystopian, I, I quite frankly think. Now, I wouldn't have said this even a year ago, now, anything I read on Facebook or Twitter, now I go, I'm gonna apply a healthy level of cynicism. Same thing about when I read anything from any news, um, new, uh, you know, news uh, pro- session these days, you know who's trustworthy these days you know people may trust Breitbart and Fox and others might trust New York Times and BBC and The Guardian and others might trust The Telegraph or or whoever but the point is I very sadly am now assigning a level of cynicism to everything I read I'm like is it true like that's the first question I have to ask and I don't know Minter like did you even think that even a year ago I think since the Brexit referendum, I've started to really go head in that direction. So for well, me, the last three, four years, I've been really increasingly more so, and especially during this pandemic.
0: Well, let's hope it's widely shared because I think it's, it's healthy to have cynicism. It's always I've written quite a number of times around the idea of a CEO, a chief ethics officer. Yeah. Yet I think actually it behooves the CEO him or herself to be the ethics officer because it's kind of a full mindset. It's not something you can delegate to something else. The second thing that's interesting is that in the media space, it's necessary to have someone who is in charge of ethics as, as in when you're right in traditional media, there's always an ethics officer. And to the extent companies can consider themselves like a Red Bull, a media company that happens to sell an energy drink, It it, it does feel like there is a a need for more ethics brought into even traditional businesses. And it's not because you can do it that you should do it when it comes to innovation.
1: Yeah, I mean, I think we're 100% in agreement with each other. I think the issue, though, like with the chief executive officer only being the one that's ethical, I mean, I think they need to surround themselves with people like that. Um, they need to surround people that themselves with people that are not are willing to challenge them, because don't forget they have to answer to their shareholders, whether they're private shareholders or public market shareholders, and and actually when you have those kind of forces at play, that's interesting to me. But actually, if you look at Facebook share price, like after the Cambridge Analytica scandal, um, two things I observed: how rapidly the share price dropped several billion dropped off the share price. And again, that happened earlier this year uh, in in the Black Lives Matter scenario, again, with Facebook. Um, But the other thing is, is what was interesting to me is in the Cambridge Analytica scandal, Facebook took two weeks to reply to a lot of these accusations. And, you know, we all know exactly what they were trying to do, which is they're probably trying to come up with the right formulated answer. Narrative. Yeah, a right narrative, because they probably... You know it probably went out of control and they didn't realize what happened so they're trying to dig beneath and figure out what happened but actually i think that two-week delay in creating that narrative really harmed the share price so how how does the chief executive you know um respond to their shareholders and that's in a big corporate setting but actually if you've got a ceo of a young startup and the shareholders are angel investors and vcs they're talking about the valuation of the next round which you know was just wrong but because they can get a cheaper deal because it's the pandemic and i tell you i've seen a lot of that right now Mm -hmm. where i've seen some very poor investor behavior um uh against a couple of the startups that i'm advising directly where they thought well we can get a cheaper deal so let's just go for it and i was like that's really poor form. you should be there to support the founder who is really trying to keep their business afloat. And when you're a young seed um, seed funded company, every day counts, you know, and every penny counts. So how do you get that runway to even December? So, you know, I've seen a lot of near deaths of startups. And I've also seen some amazing startups that have gone under because um, the investors were just not willing to put money in. And that's me speaking out against myself sometimes, right? um so i think we all have we all have something to say here you know it's not just the big corporates but i do think the ethics side is huge and it's very important it's doing the right thing for the company and the right thing for the founder but let's also be commercial here people are investing in innovation because they want to make money right they want to return on that venture capitalists do corporates you know want to drive efficiency because it means you know return on the share price um founders want that return as well and government wants a return for their population right they want more jobs they want you know more wealth creation they want more security uh you know and bringing everyone up with them as the country grows so there is a returns-based thinking that sometimes can be contrarian to the ethics side
0: well when you, you mentioned shareholders or the vcs And that's why I was sort of my line of investigation was to what extent the way people evaluate innovation might be changing because some of us really feel the need to be protecting the planet, doing better things for the world, finding purpose. We got the CEO letter of 181. CEOs who suggested that it's not just about the bottom line and and yes, yeah. paying, paying the piper of the, the, the shareholder. And yet so many, I mean, the, the, the words I like to use is innovation is the lifeblood of any company. It can be innovation in different areas of the company. So it can be the product, but it can also be the way you communicate. It can be the way you run the factory. So innovation can be displayed or executed in many different ways. But I, I wonder to what extent until we get shareholders to buy in on the value of purpose, the value of ethics,
2: yeah.
0: well, then there's always going to have to be a rollback. Well, not, yes, nice thing to have, any, but you know what? Any so,
1: so I think one other observation I'd make is Gen, uh, so millennials and Gen Zs In the next 20 years, it'll be 75% of our workforce. And let's face it, that's how they both think as generations. They're much more purpose-driven. And they're the ones that are founding companies with that purpose. There are VC funds popping up more and more that invest in people with that purpose. There's still a commercial, um, commercial, you know, bent to how they're investing. But, you know, the whole reason for being is having that purpose. Um, and you look at corporates be- who employ these generations, and they're, sa- they're saying, guys, you need to do better. We only are going to work with you if you do better. And actually, if you think about the, the Google walkouts, that's a great example. Um, uh, and, and so that's a really good example of how certain generations are impacting how a lot of these chief executives need to think so i do think that as a society we're moving in the right direction but actually there's other forces as well that are at play so for vcs they have the lp right so the person that's putting the money in the fund and there is an expectation of returns so the vcs are going to say when they put money in are we going to get our money back at three to five x right that's the discussion in the deal room that's how it works because yeah. that- what the limited partner wants and even the LP that's putting money into the social impact funds there is an expectation of return those big hedge funds so it's a value chain um if one doesn't change then the rest will struggle to change so I think you've got to think about that overall change and thinking across the whole value chain which for me is always interesting and actually because of the work I do I'm understanding more and more elements of that value chain and where they come from and why they come from where they come from in terms of thinking.
0: Uh, my friend um, is a Frenchman, you may know him, Nicolas Collin. He has a newsletter, called called European Straits, which is always very interesting. And he, he talks uh, in, uh, a lot about these topics. I would say he's my main source for all of this stuff. Yeah. He, he wrote, um, there's not just one framework for investing in tech startups. Beware any advice, including mine. I thought that was rather funny.
1: I, I agree with him. That's great. <laughs> <laughs> I would say the same thing. <laughs>
0: what, one of the last area of, of discussion I wanted to have with you, Pindi, is with regard to this gap that you facilitate, that you network in between, which is between corporates, startups, governments, and, uh, and investors, of course, the finance world. What 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 is it? What do you see as the biggest issue in in getting the fluidity between these groups? Let's say a big corporate that wants to be more innovative, wants to onboard startupness, or a startup, or is it the the way that the investors are are looking at it? What are the big challenges that you face in networking through or facilitating this gap? Anyway,
1: I think people are focused and i'll go back to the very beginning of where i said you know i I cast myself as uh ideally a talented generalist right understand where all of them are coming from but most people are in their silos a negative word this is not what i mean as negative but they're they're on their focus they're on their path and they're sticking on their path and the founder is trying to disrupt something with their technology and trying to get users for the technology and take it to the next level to the next level of funding if that's the path they're going on the corporate is using innovation to increase efficiencies or create new business models or move into new markets and create shareholder value the vcs are all about the returns you know typically and government as i said before is about improving the lives of their citizens and they don't necessarily think outside of that path they don't think well actually is what i'm doing for example as a government policymaker really going to improve the needs of these startups and the government for example has to think about every type of person from every walk of life so they're much more you know they're broader thinking because they have to think of whole whole countries and 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 the like but what i try to do is i have built an insight because i've worked quite deeply in each of those areas now so i try to provide a translation service and go (laughs) actually if you think of it this way this is what they're going for you know so a startup raising from a vc i can go actually that vc is probably not going to be interested in you because these are the last five investments they've made and you can see they're kind of focused in this space and therefore you know probably not wise oh actually Your business plan, you're trying to get to a million revenue this year and five million next. How viable is that? Because actually the VC is going to dig under the numbers and really see, can you get to five million? Or it's just an
0: Excel spreadsheet. (laughs) You've
1: got to prove you can get to it. And then the corporates who are like, oh, I want to buy from these cute little startups. But then it turns out they end up killing the startup because they buy from them. And then the startup is so overwhelmed by the questions from that corporate. So the startup doesn't know when they need to step out Um, and the poor corporate didn't know any better you know and so it's about providing that translation services so i think it's you know there is so much value in trying to help bridge that gap because ultimately for me you know you asked me earlier uh, what else makes me passionate it's it what makes me passionate is when i see those connections create magic and that magic might be revenue that magic might be they get customers that magic might be you know they're creating more jobs for that local uh, council area you know whatever the magic is for me it's the meeting of the two of them that creates that magic and that for me is you know the most important thing and because I've worked in all of those spaces I can at the very least have a good level of knowledge and I can talk like a corporate but I can also say well I myself am a founder. So I understand that paying that credit card bill or paying next month's rent and not paying myself salary for the last five years, it's a real pain. Mm -hmm. And so I understand and feel the pain that you're going through in a way that a comfortable corporate, uh, executive might not understand. Um, and, and, you know, it's all of those kind of things. So
0: your work, you, you work at the, um, on the European innovation council. Yeah. And you mentioned before that the government needs to think more broadly. The cynical mentor says, well, they, they need to think about how they're going to get re-elected, as opposed to necessarily always doing what's good for everybody else. What To what extent do you believe that the government can be, should be, is a stimulus of innovation? Uh,
1: it's a great question. Um, I think government should be there to facilitate. I'm a private sector person, always have been, always will be. And I think the government should be there to facilitate and take down the barriers that might be in the way of innovation creation. So um, the EIC, I sit on their board and what I'd say about them is they're all civil servants, right? so they work for European Commission and the one political person at the top, the minister, who is chosen by the government? Uh, you know, every local gov, every um, president or prime minister will choose that minister, and then that minister will lobby for the position. So the minister of innovation is the one that the EIC sits under. Um, what I would say is, they've actually been really open-minded and open to. We've been really hard on them, for example. So they've chosen. 20 of us from academic and tech and innovators world across Europe, um, and we've been really hard on them. We've just said, you need to think about this, you need to get out of the way of this. We've, and, and to be to their credit, they've actually listened and created things along the way. Ultimately, what they did is they saw that there was a gap in the deep tech space, so we're going back to deep tech, where actually a researcher from a university might come up with a piece of IP but for that IP to get to a commercial level and built to a level where it's able to go to market and it's being able to be sold to customers, that's a five year journey. But how on earth is that creator supposed to fund that? How are they supposed to surround themselves with a the team? And that's where a lot of these government grants come in, right? And, and so, um, but then they're like the, the, the body, the government body's like, we need to get out of the way. And then let the private sector step in and take the company to the next level. Ultimately, for them, they want the next unicorn and decacorn in Europe. We don't have that many. So for them, they're like, we need to create groundbreaking innovation in Europe. And there's a chart that we were shown in Brussels end of 2018. And the top 25 internet companies in the world were 100% US and Chinese. Nothing from Europe. And that's just disappointing. And why are we doing that? And there's lots, that's a whole other, whole other discussion. But, you know, we need to lay the groundwork so that these companies that have the potential to become unicorns and decacorns, um, UiPath just became one, for example. Um, so that, you know, so that they'll, they'll stay in Europe as opposed to relocating to Silicon Valley where a lot of that kind of funding is the money should be here and let them have the funding they need to get to a level level to be commercialized. So I think mm. that's kind of the role to me. Mm. It um, sounded,
0: in, in listening to you, it sounds like they're good at helping look a little bit longer term as opposed to the VC three months, quick flip and they give that sort of bigger vision. And I can't help but think of my friends in Estonia and the way that they work. And it's, I think it's a phenomenal, example of being really business friendly i mean because their existence depends on it but the way so many of these larger government institutions run by civil stevens who may be extremely intelligent but just not practical when it comes to business i i tend to think "Hmm, exactly like you how on earth can they get out of the way of innovation
1: well i think they have to embrace wanting input from people like me I, I like to say I'm a professional troublemaker. So I'm a troublemaker with class. I'm always asking and poking and blah, blah, blah. I'm not like a troublemaker where it causes them consternation, but I'm like, guys, have you thought about this? Have you thought about that? Have you thought about this? Have you thought about that? You know, that's the whole point about being on an NED or on a board or an advisor. You ask the, you don't tell them what to do. You just ask the questions that make them think outside of the, the you know, the path that they're going Have you thought about this? or? you know, well, why, why this, why that? Just so that way they, they're more comfortable with the direction that they're going in. So yeah, professional troublemaker. It's, it's quite fun.
0: Bindi on that wonderful <laughs> troublesome idea. Um, thanks for coming on. How can anyone get in touch with you, track you down, follow what you're up to get in, get involved with you somehow?
1: Yeah. I mean, you can check my, my personal website, bindikorea.com or if you do bindiventures.com, it leads to my site. Or just send me an email to bindy at bindyventures.com or reach out to me through LinkedIn or uh, Twitter at bindyk. K. And always happy to chat.
0: Beautiful. I'll put that in the show notes. Thanks again, Bindi. Great to see you. Stay well, stay cool and stay sane.
1: You too, Bindi. Lovely to chat.
0: Thanks for having listened to this recording of the Minter Dialogue show. You'll find the show notes and other blog posts on MinterDial.com. If you enjoyed the show, please head over to iTunes to give a rating and review. And to finish, here's a song I wrote with Stephanie Singer, A Convinced Man.